This is Brainstem with your host, neuroscientist Dr. Hilary Marusak. Production by Amanpreet and Manmeet Bogle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode seven. The topic of today's episode is really interesting. We're going to be talking about one of the most mysterious brain disorders that we know of, and that is schizophrenia. I will first start by interviewing Lindsay Rausch, who has a really interesting story. She's the youngest of 12 siblings, and six of her siblings had schizophrenia. Her family was also the personal focus of a fantastic book called Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family, which also gives a very wonderful history of schizophrenia in the U.S. So here's my interview with Lindsay. Before we get started with the interview, please note that this episode contains references to self-harm, suicide, and sexual abuse and may not be suitable for all listeners. All right, Lindsay, uh, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. You and your family have such a fascinating story. I'm really excited to Um, dig into this with you. Can you first start by just kind of introducing yourself and tell us what it was like growing up? Well, first I want to say thank you to Brainstem for having me. Um, I'm really grateful to be able to continue to advocate and speak about um, the challenges and the joys that um, being from a family of 12 that has six schizophrenic brothers in it. So um, it was lovely. Growing up in our family, there were 12 of us, um, 10 boys and two girls, and our childhood was really fairly idyllic um, until the illness struck. And if you were to speak to my older brothers, the effects it had on them were less so because they, uh, many of them were already out of the home before my first brother became ill. Um, But I was very young. And so I grew up with schizophrenia around me. My parents did a remarkable job of providing all of us that were unaffected um, with an amazing life of ballet and symphony and sports and ice hockey and lots of family outings. And I think that's one thing that didn't come across as clearly in the book as I wish is that despite the tragedy, despite the years and years of difficulty, we were definitely a family. We had Christmases together and with my brothers that were affected, um, you know, because the illness doesn't strike until later in life, you're not born, you know, predominantly rare that you're born with it as a child. Um, It's, you know, between the ages of 15 and 25. So it was scary to watch each of my brothers in turn become ill over the course of my life. The first was when I was two. And then through the course of my childhood, five others fell ill, um, one committing suicide. Um, so it was scary in that you thought it was going to happen to you. I think that by the unaffected siblings, probably number one fear was, when is this going to happen to me? And in turn, you ended up kind of keeping your emotions um, repressed because often the person with the mental illness was so highly emotional, you know anger or sadness or so you tended to kind of stuff it so it had both the joys of being a family and the the fears that go along with your siblings becoming ill 
So Yeah, like a normal family, ups and downs, definitely. What were yep. some of the things you started noticing in your brothers? I know you were, you were only two the first time, but what, what is it like? I remember quite clearly as a, as a young child, my brother Don, um, who was affected first coming home from college and being afraid that there was somebody outside that was trying to hurt us. So, you know, he was having hallucinations and he was paranoid. And as a young child, I didn't know that wasn't real. I'm looking out the window for the person that's trying to hurt us. Um, and so I think it's for, for children, it's confusing because, you know, there's adults there telling you it's unaffected people telling you it's not real. And then you're looking at your brother, who's your dear brother, who you've known all your life, who's having this um, delusion and hallucination, and you don't know what to believe as a young child. So, you know, I think it took me a number of years to be able to determine when what was going on was, um, was really happening to them and when they were in a delusion or a hallucination. So... Yeah, I'm just trying to think of what it must have been like as a kid, too, because there's so much like when you're a kid, you make believe everything. And then, <laughs> you know, parents are like, no, that's not really true. So that must have been really, really confusing. Um, and yeah, he came yeah. home from college. You said he was a different person. Um, mm -hmm. That must have been really hard, too. And I know it, it was hard on your parents. And I think that was detailed in the book. And I want to get into some of the stigma around that mm -hmm. later. But what was it like for you guys as a family? you know, dealing with other families? Did you tell people about what was happening? Um, how did during, that look? Yeah, during the era when our family was affected, um, there was very little that was talked about. Everything was kept very under the rug, very hush-hush. Um, and, and to some extent, I mean, to a large extent, that's still true today, where families, if somebody is affected by a severe mental illness, don't tell their neighbors or their friends or you know, the people in their community or they, and that's really, I think the most important thing now that we, and I know we'll get into that later, but um, my parents kept it pretty close to their chest. They were pretty ashamed. Um, at that time, mothers were blamed for the illness. It was called the schizophrenic mother. So, and mama refused that. She was, she was a pioneer and warrior who would not buy into that, um, that belief. And I'm really proud of her. I think that's probably one of the greatest things that she did was not believe. She believed it was a brain disorder. You know, she's a super smart lady and did her research. And she was convinced that it had something to do with the brain not developing correctly or not having the proper nutrients or not. She, you know, she was, she knew it was a brain disorder, not anything she had done in her parenting. Um, but you know, we didn't share it with them. We were, we were told to keep it pretty quiet, but of course it gets out. And um, that's really challenging for sure, because you're so embarrassed as a child that your brother is doing these weird things, you know, showing up at the playground and dressed in a funny way and talking to himself. And um, so when we, you know, even cancer at that time, you know, if the neighbor got cancer, everyone was like, shh, did you hear Mr. Smith, you know, has cancer? So you can imagine what that was like for schizophrenia that is still so misunderstood. Um, so unfortunately, yeah. my parents weren't great at, and later in their life, you know, they, they were phenomenal at talking about it. But early on, it was pretty hard for them to tell anybody. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even still today, this is something that we we struggle with and different cultures definitely um, keep it more hush-hush than others. So I think there's mm -hmm. just so much work that needs to be done. Um, mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious, what, what are the other things that you noticed in your brothers and um, what were the challenges that they faced in their lives, um, you know, that people without severe mental illness may not face? Um, housing. I would say housing is the number one problem that not only my brothers have spent their life struggling with, but all people who suffer currently um, struggle with. Um, we do not care for those who suffer in our society and many societies, not just ours. Um, and we have chosen to house our mentally ill on our city streets. Um, the homeless population is a huge majority. I don't know what the exact percentages are, but they're, I would imagine they're quite high um, in respect to, you know, I know that there's a big crossover between drug addiction and the mentally ill and the mentally ill self-medicating, but many of the people that you see on the streets that are living homeless are not meth addicts. They're not, you know, and even if they were, that's a disease too. That's, a, you know, that needs to be treated by our society. It's more expensive for us to be treating them in our emergency rooms than if we were to provide proper housing for them so that they could receive proper care and at least have that stability in their life where they know they have a place to rest their head and get out of the cold and the heat. And, you know, we're seeing these numbers of homeless people die in Portland with this last heat wave. Is, is that really a culture we want to be as people? I don't think so. I think caring for others who are affected by serious illnesses is um, at the heart of a good society. And so homeless, um, housing, proper care, medication. Um, and then, you know, I would say the public misunderstanding of mm -hmm. these brain disorders and the shame that goes with that for these people that, that are affected and their families. Yeah, that was... Uh, beautiful. I'm going to take a clip out of that and, and use that because I think you're spot I'm on. on my, I was getting on my, getting on my <laughs> I mean, do it. Like that, that is a very powerful message. And no matter where you live, like you see people who are affected by this and um, the jail is another um, oh, yes, kind of area you. that people end up. So mm -hmm. I think you're right. Like we're, we're spending all this money and having these people come into the ERs um, whenever they need it, which is very costly and very expensive when we're, we're not actually treating them. We're not helping mm -hmm. them. So we're turning them away. Yeah. I've had to fight like crazy for that. That has been the ERs are really overrun. And yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a massive, massive societal issue that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of your brothers, I know, um, are managed with treatment. So how does that medication factor play um, a role? Has it been helpful for your, your siblings? Yes, I think that, you know, unfortunately at the time when my brothers became ill, it was during a period in history of over-medicating. Mm -hmm. um, they hadn't developed, they were, you know, Haldol and some of the really, really intense sedatives were being used. And, mm -hmm. you know, my brothers, I think they felt like guinea pigs. Um, because they were born into the era when medication was the only thing being used. Mm -hmm. And there was a real, there wasn't a, a blending of different supports to include therapies, occupational therapies, and helping them find work that would fit into, you know, they were pretty much locked up and sedated. Mm -hmm. That was pretty much the era. Um, 
their illness, my brother's schizophrenia is also paranoid, severe paranoid schizophrenia with anosognosia, the inability to self-reflect that you have the illness. Mm -hmm. And so for them, you know, the medications are really the only answer. The medications are not great. We need way more research on this, you know, in this, in this area to help these folks because the medications are, are um, very damaging to their, to their heart. Um, they cause diabetes, they you know, cause obesity. Um, there are a lot of really horrible side effects. So mm-hmm. um, I know sometimes it, folks really struggle with the decision to have to take these meds, but I don't, for somebody that's as ill as my brothers, I don't know what the alternative really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, that just goes to show that we need to do so much more in this area. And, and you already highlighted that things have changed. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we used to think that mothers played a huge role in this when that was finally, thankfully, discounted mm-hmm. as, you know, this is a brain disease. It is heritable, but, um, you know, so many brain diseases are, and it's not something that parents do, you know, to cause these things from happening. And medications have gotten better in some respects, but they're still very you know, antiquated. We've been using the same kind of class of, of drugs for a long time. And um, in part, because we don't really understand um, how things like schizophrenia happen in the brain. And that just, you know, we need more research and we need more understanding of this. And it, it is so mysterious and so um, difficult because the brain is <laughs> very mysterious. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here because I know your daughter is also interested in neuroscience. It's super fascinating field, but I'm just glad to to hear that we have more bright young minds um, getting into this field. But um, I wanna talk about stigma now, cause stigma is something we talked about offline. I know you're very passionate about uh, combating stigma, mm-hmm. um, especially with severe mental illness and schizophrenia in particular. Um, can you talk about some of the stigma that you know your family or your brothers have faced? Yeah, you bet, you bet. Um, I'm gonna tell you a, a little story. Um, when I was a child, third grade, I think my eldest brother, Donald, liked to, he thought he was a monk. He'd dress up as a monk and he'd have a, um, childhood bow and arrow set that he would strap across his chest. And he would walk over the hill from Hidden Valley Road, where our home was to the playground. And he would walk around the playground and watch the children. And I was one of those children. And I would pretend that I didn't know him. Um, I would come home to my mother crying that he had come to school again. The principal would call my mother and ask her to please not allow him to come to the school. Um, People wouldn't walk to our end. It was a a cul-de-sac, a a dead end cul-de-sac. And people in the valley when they would walk wouldn't walk up to our home because of their fear and misunderstanding. Um, My playmates weren't allowed to come over to my home and play. Um, People called our house haunted. Um, And so as a kid, you know, the the no friends to play with, to come over, um, you know, I always had to go to their homes. So I think that's, you know, and you pretend that it doesn't affect you. As a child who's a sibling, you put on this mask every day and you go out into the world and pretend. And so you get really good at acting. So, yeah, it's, it's harsh. It's definitely harsh. And yeah. I know that many, many families who are affected can understand what I'm saying mm-hmm. in order to get yourself up and go to school and, you know, or to yeah. work. 
Absolutely. I mean, this is a common thing we hear from all types of brain disorders that there's so much shame was a word that you kept saying that I really, I think is the best way of describing it, like shame and misunderstanding. And I think one thing that we can do, even if it's a small thing, is just to educate people and to share your story and to, um, you know, have it clear that more people are affected than you might think. And even if they're acting like things are okay, like you never know what someone's experiencing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean they're on drugs. I think that's probably exactly misunderstanding or that they're dangerous. I think that's right. I guess that yeah. That. So that goes into my question. I wanted to ask you, um, what are some common misconceptions about schizophrenia? Hollywood. <laughs> I <would love> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> In one word, I would like to see Hollywood stop representing people with severe mental illnesses as violent in mm-hmm. horror stories. Um, I think that, you know, um, Alfred Hitchcock's, what's the one, um, Oh, shoot, slipped my mind. But Alfred Hitchcock's movie, um, Psycho, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, was really the beginning of an era of films that um, created severe stigma and fear around those who suffer with mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. And um, although some people with mental illness do have violent tendencies, the percentage and the data shows that they are far less mm-hmm. um, likely to commit a violent act than the general public at large. So I think that's probably my biggest misconception that I would like to try to break down is that there's no need to be afraid of people that suffer from mental illness. They are Mm -hmm. in tremendous fear themselves. And Mm -hmm. um, so, and then anosognosia, I think that's a really, really, really important thing for people to understand. And, And it doesn't just exist with schizophrenia. If any of you have people in your family that suffer from Alzheimer's, that's a really good example. Um, mm-hmm. um, and and um, um, drug abuse. People mm-hmm. often people that abuse drugs are have anosognosia. They cannot self recognize that they have an illness. So when you try to tell somebody with schizophrenia that they're ill, they have no idea what you're speaking of because mm-hmm. they don't perceive themselves as ill. Um, so it's. I would really like to educate people that they're like, well, why don't they get help? They're just in denial. If they're sick, why don't they go see a doctor? So I think it's important to understand that schizophrenia is often coupled with this, another brain disorder called. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, a really important thing to highlight too, that they're not like just not understanding and it's actually part of the, the syndrome itself. So it's like this double-edged sword where if you, um, it's really hard to treat people like that, right? If they, if they don't know that they're sick. So very hard for families. Here's a a great example. Imagine if you're, you go to a doctor and they tell you you're not married to Sally. You have been married to Sally for 30 years. And this doctor is now telling you, you are not. And that is a delusion. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of put it in context of your own life, the things that you have in your life and you treasure and you believe in, that somebody with schizophrenia actually does believe that they've spent a lifetime building churches, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. or that they do control climate change, that they're yeah. responsible for the fires. So, you know, it's finding that compassion uh, for these folks, that these delusions are not something they're 
wishing upon themselves. Yeah. And same with hallucinations. I would say I hear that sometimes that people are just making it up that they hear voices talking to them. And there's some really interesting like neuroimaging studies where people who experience hallucinations are in the MRI machine and you ask them to like press a button whenever they're hearing a voice in their head. And you actually see the auditory cortex light up in the same way that if someone is actually speaking. So that just really shows that the brain is so powerful. And you know, it's kind of like when you're dreaming, like you really think this is happening to you. Your brain is such a powerful, you know, reality machine. But like you said, like they really think this is happening. And um, in some cases that can be really troubling. That's very traumatizing. And then imagine somebody telling you it's not real. Mm-hmm. On top of that. Drama. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> like, no, absolutely. I'm looking at it. It's right there. I'm hearing it. It's right here. And you're like, mm-hmm. so it's, I think the learning about anosognosia and how to interact with somebody that suffers is really important for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things um, that we talked about also was trauma and you keep bringing this up to it. Mm-hmm. It's so interconnected with, with mental illness in some respects. Um, how do you think that played a role in what your siblings experienced and what your family went through and possibly the recovery process? Um, I believe um, psychological trauma. Um, personally, I believe that it can be a trigger for further severe mental illness. That's um, my older brothers were sexually abused by Catholic priests. Um, they both became schizophrenic. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have watched Spotlight. Um, which is the story of the Boston Globe. And there was a psychologist in that movie that said, or a psychiatrist, I'm not sure which, who kept having these people come into his hospital who had been abused by priests and they were suffering from you know, bipolar and schizophrenia and major depression and severe anxiety. And so I think there's certainly an element of trauma, whether it's childhood trauma or going off to war or having a loss of a parent or, um, that can contribute enormously to more severe um, brain disorders. Um, and lost my train of thought there. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, a victim of trauma. I mean, I was traumatized. Um, I was sexually abused by one of my older brothers. And growing up in a household of schizophrenics, or people that suffer from schizophrenia, forgive me, um, is traumatizing in and of itself. Seeing your brothers become affected, become ill. It's, it's almost like a, another death in the family because here's this person who you adored and loved. My brother, Matthew, was my soccer coach. Um, you know, he was my hero. He was my everything. He did everything with me, took care of me. And then he went off to college at 18 and came back six months later, schizophrenic. Yeah, people don't realize that that um, like kind of secondhand or even firsthand experiences um, that can definitely take a toll. But I think like with COVID, a lot of the conversation is around like caregiver burden and caregiver stress, and they don't think about the role that, you know, family members play in that. So those are really important things to highlight. And the data really support what you're saying. I mean, childhood trauma exposure is one of the most significant risk factors we have for mental and physical health conditions. So not just something like severe mental illness, but also things like cancer and heart disease. So mm-hmm. this is definitely something that needs to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think people really need, if a trauma occurs, um, really need to not blow it off and get help. 
Um, you know, you see the suicide rates in kids these days. It's pretty unbelievable, pretty significant. And whatever that trauma might be, it may not seem huge to you, but that kid needs to get therapy first and mm-hmm. potentially, you know, more support through, through whether it's medications or peer groups or um, finding occupational therapy, ways to reduce their stress in their life. And mm-hmm. so I just want to really, really, I mean, I wish I had had support as a child. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. I got it when I was 18, but the kids struggling, yeah. get them some help right away. Yeah. And that, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you, because I know you're a huge proponent of therapy and I, I love that. Mm-hmm. So what would you recommend for people who um, think they have schizophrenia, although I know they have that um, symptom that's part of that, or maybe like a loved one or a family member, or even someone who's affected by trauma or just mental health in general, what would you recommend? Well, I would say for family members um, who are unaffected, but you know, I know this is cliche, but put on your own oxygen mask first. You're not going to be able to be a caregiver if you don't take care of yourself and get the support that you need in order to, and you're not going to be any good to the person that is affected that you're having to care for if, if you're not well. Um, so I know that sometimes caregivers tend to sacrifice so much that they end up being ineffective at helping to care for their affected um, family member. So that would be my first thing. I would say, um, talk, talk about it, find a support group, join an online support group, go to your local NAMI chapter um, for both those affected and family members. I think that reaching out to other people that are experiencing what you're experiencing will not only help you feel not so um, ashamed and embarrassed, Mm -hmm. but will give you great ideas that you may not have otherwise come up with. Um, if you're able to speak about it. For instance, my son went to outdoor wilderness therapy when he was struggling with school anxiety and and, um, school aversion. I mean, I think that's one of the early signs of possible major depression or even worse mental illnesses when your kid won't go to school. There's something there. Why aren't they going? Why aren't they participating? What's the anxiety about? Are they being bullied? And get them the support they need. Um, you know, for somebody with schizophrenia, I, I saw a big difference with my brother, Joseph, who did not have anosognosia and participated in group and was very compliant and always went to his doctor appointments and really stuck with the same therapist for a long time. Um, not, not doctor hopping, you know, really try to hang in there and, and stay with, you know, the people that are trying to help you. I think that long-term commitment to care is really going to help the most of anything. Um, so I think those are all the things I had on there for that. That's wonderful, yeah. wonderful um, yeah. recommendations and just being consistent. I will link mm-hmm. to NAMI, which you mentioned, which is also, I totally yeah. agree, great resource for, for folks. And Lindsay, uh-huh. if you have any support groups that you recommend specifically for family members, I'll get those from you and we can yeah. put them in the, the link to the podcast. That'd be great. The Henry Amador Center on Anosognosia, I think, is extremely helpful to families who have loved ones that are affected that don't believe they have an illness and that are not compliant with care. Um, And then, of course, I have to go to the Galvin Family Trust, which is a disability trust, which helps enable me to take my brother's 
on fishing trips or, um, you know, buy them a computer or simple things. And I think all families who have affected members would benefit enormously from setting up their own disability trust to help their loved one. That's wonderful. I will definitely get that information and share it. And then I guess last question. So what can our audience do to help um, combat stigma in this area besides just sharing the podcast, you know, another shout out with, <laughs> with everyone. What, what would you recommend? Um, engage in your community and talk about it with your neighbors. Talk about, you'll be surprised um, if you're willing to talk about your own experiences with it. You know, people just come out of the woodwork. You know, they have a brother, an uncle, an aunt, a, a sibling. Um, I think my own family still struggles with stigma and my own siblings still really do. And it's like, how can we just rise above this and, and fight it and fight for your loved ones that are suffering? Um, and when I say fight, it means talking to officials about it, going to your congressmen and your senators and telling them, how important these mental health issues are. Mm -hmm. Look at what your state is trying to do in terms of passing legislation to provide funding for housing. So we're not having to walk by these people on the street every day. Mm -hmm. None of us want that. I mean, you know, none of us want that. When we interact with somebody who suffers, be kind. Mm -hmm. They're suffering, you know, say hello. Don't avoid them. They're not... I'm not going to hurt you. You're not going to catch it from them. I know I'm preaching <laughs> to the choir with this group, but, you know, I think passing that on to your neighbors to mm-hmm. go ahead and interact with these people. You know, mm-hmm. they have a lot to offer. They, you know, many of them are, have wonderful traits that they can share, whether it's their arts or humanities or, um, you know, their own skills that they developed before they became ill. And so mm-hmm. just don't, don't, don't shut them out. They're people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so at the end of the day, they are. Yep. yep. They're just like you and me. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome, Lindsay. Well, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your story. Um, I'm going to do another shout out to the book that was written about your family, mm-hmm. um, Hidden Valley Road Inside um, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Excellent read. It's on my summer reading list, and um, I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you so much, yeah. Lindsay. You bet. Bob Colker did a great job. I, he's got to get a plug because his uh, accounting of my family's story was remarkable. Awesome. Thank you so much. That wraps up my interview with Lindsay. Next, to hear about some of the underlying brain science, we're going to hear from Dr. Gil Hoffman, who is a health sciences clinical instructor in child psychiatry at the UCLA Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Division. Dr. Hoffman's research interests are in molecular mechanisms underlying cognitive dysfunction in schizophrenia, with an emphasis on understanding the cell and circuit-specific developmental trajectories of those key molecular components. 
The goal is to use this research to inform patients' lives by identifying biologically informed, innovative approaches to treat cognitive dysfunction and schizophrenia, and by ideally preventing or delaying the onset of psychosis in people with schizophrenia. Here's the interview. All right, Dr. Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk to you. You have such an interesting research um, topic, and I love your background <laughs> for those who are watching the video um, portion of this. So um, I think I actually learned this fact in graduate school that the word schizophrenia comes from Greek roots, and schizo means split, and phrenia means mind, so splitting of the mind. Um, it has such an interesting kind of history. Can you talk a little bit about the, the history of schizophrenia? Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Um, so the term schizophrenia, as you mentioned, you know, does come from Greek roots, but it wasn't always used to describe this class of syndromes that we ascribe to today. Um, and sadly, the term has actually been a source of misunderstanding and stigma um, because many people believe that schizophrenia is the same as multiple personality or split personality disorders. But in fact, it's not. Um, and the history of schizophrenia really aligns with a long history of madness, um, which is basically as old as humanity itself. And afflicted people have been confronted with cruelty, confounded with demonic possession, confined to institutions, treated involuntarily with medications, electricity, and surgical procedures, and recently caught in a revolving door of hospital, street, and prison, at least in the U.S., um, so it's got a long history of misunderstanding, of challenging treatments. Um, and before it was called schizophrenia, a German psychiatrist named Emil Kraepelin actually termed it dementia praecox, or precocious or premature or early onset dementia. This was in 1893. And he used that term to separate it from the manic depressive psychosis disorders, or what we know as bipolar disorder, um, which typically did not have a progressive and deteriorating course. However, in 1911, Eugen Bloiler, who was a Swiss psychiatrist, thought that the term precocious dementia didn't really describe many patients with this syndrome and renamed it the group of schizophrenias. So it wasn't even uh, a singular, it was a plural, the group of schizophrenias, or a splitting or splintering in the faculties of the mind. Um, so in recent years, um, there have been really passionate discussions about renaming schizophrenia to reduce stigma and to more clearly name the syndrome or group of syndromes. And this actually, it has been renamed in places like Japan. And so it'll be interesting to see whether that actually makes a difference in terms of, of stigma and understanding the illness more clearly. So interesting. And thanks for kind of that winding history of this um, disorder and collection of disorders. What is the, the new name that they're considering? Um, so there have been a, a number of different names, um, and rather than, you know, calling it like, you know, split personality, they're, they're thinking of, of calling it, um, you know, like, what was it like split, like split faculty or, you know, trying to make it much more clear that it's not actually like the, the mind or the personalities that are, that are getting separated, but it's actually like aspects. Um, so like the cognition or the emotional aspects that are no longer functioning together. So it's almost like a disconnection syndrome that they're trying to rename it as. Um, but different cultures have different um, kind of uh, ways of approaching this. We haven't gotten too far yet. 
<laughs> that makes sense. That that's really really interesting, and I think like the power of like the name itself and the associated stigma is a really important thing to consider. And I know we're going to touch on that a little bit later because I know it's one of your you know passion areas. Um, can you? You're someone who who studies and treats the disorder, so you're a clinician as well as a scientist. So you um, definitely have a lot of firsthand experience from patients about what types of symptoms they have. So you, can you just describe? Um, some of the types of symptoms that are associated with um, schizophrenia or whatever we're going to call this. Yeah. 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 We could call it schizophrenia, but keeping in mind and um, that, that calling it schizophrenia um, is what is the best we can do right now. Um, But hopefully in the future we can get more specific, Um, but yeah, happy to talk about symptoms. So it's schizophrenia itself is typically characterized by three symptom domains. Um, they're called positive, negative, and cognitive. Now, the positive and negative symptom domains are used for the clinical diagnosis in the context of impairment and functional decline, as well as the time course, so like how long they've been around. Uh, the positive symptoms are really the most recognized symptoms and also the most feared because they are the so-called psychotic symptoms, which signals a loss of contact with reality. And they include delusions. Uh, like paranoia or persecution and grandeur, uh, hallucinations, which are, often involve hearing voices, but sometimes seeing disturbing images or shadows, and then thought disorder, which can be, for example, loosened associations, where the, the connections that we make are um, not the same kinds of connections that people with this symptom make, and it leads to disorganized speech and behavior. Now, the negative symptoms are a bit more subtle, um, but they do include flattening of emotional expression, uh, lack of interest or motivation, lack of thoughts or words that can be formed, social withdrawal, poor hygiene. um, And they're they're really debilitating, and actually we don't have good treatments for them. And then there's a third symptom domain that I was mentioning, the cognitive symptoms. They include difficulty with processing information, planning, executing goal-driven behavior, following conversation and knowing how to respond uh, to anything in the environment. So cognitive symptoms are the most persistent and debilitating daily aspects of the syndrome, and they're also the hardest to treat. They also start well before the positive symptoms and persist even when delusions and hallucinations aren't present. However, they're not used as diagnostic criteria um, in the clinic itself, but they're they're acknowledged as being uh, very difficult symptoms. Now, many of these symptoms I mentioned, the positive, negative, and cognitive are present in some form before the full-blown onset of clinical illness. And then a part of this period is called the psychosis risk or prodromal period. And so those symptoms tend to be nonspecific and and many who have some hallucination or delusion-like symptoms will actually not ever develop schizophrenia. Um, So we're kind of moving away from calling it a prodrome and calling it more of a psychosis risk state. But prodromes and the concept of prodromes are not uncommon in medicine, and they're common for other illnesses. And the the characteristic prodrome is for measles, where there's like a flu-like symptoms um, before the characteristic rash appears. One last thing before I break from this this, uh, question is another symptom that's recognized but not often talked about, and it's called anosognosia. And anosognosia is a fancy medical term for symptom blindness or simply the inability to recognize that you're sick. And many people with schizophrenia cannot see that they're sick. 
And it's not because they're stubborn or in denial or trying to be difficult. It's a real symptom and we don't really have any good treatments for it. So it's important for family members and providers and friends to recognize that this is a symptom um, because it can relieve some frustration when you're engaging the person with schizophrenia and help you think of better ways to help them adhere with treatment. Yeah, thank you for, for all of that information. Um, the positive and negative symptoms, I think, are really interesting. And um, I know when I was a grad student, I was kind of confused because positive makes it sound like it's like a beneficial thing. But correct me if, I wrong, if I'm wrong, I think it just means the presence of something that's new. So like hallucinations are not typically normal. So the addition of that um, is kind of something that the patient is experiencing is, is a positive symptom versus negative is something that you would expect to be there. Like the ability to finish the sentence, if I'm not able to do that anymore, that's, that's a negative symptom. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it's very confusing terminology, um, but that's exactly right. Positive just means, you know, in a, in a typical unaffected person, they wouldn't have that symptom, like they wouldn't have that extra thing. And negative means that in a typical unaffected person, they would have the ability, for example, to have uh, emotional expression or have interest and motivation and other things, whereas people with schizophrenia a lot of times lack that. Interesting. Yeah. And the classic symptoms, as you mentioned, are kind of like those hallucinations of seeing things or hearing things that aren't there, um, delusions. Can you give a couple examples of delusions? Because I don't know if most people will be familiar with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so delusion, just to give you a, a definition and then I'll give you the examples, but it's basically a, a, a fixed false belief um, that remains strong, even in the presence of countered evidence that's not really within the person's culture. Um, so we have to be very careful because people like to describe, you know, religious views and political views as delusions if they don't agree with them, but that's not what we're talking about here. Um, and delusions themselves can be bizarre or they could be almost things that you would say, okay, well, yeah, that actually could be happening. Um, so one example of a delusion that could be happening is a person who says, well, you know, there's this guy out here and he's, he's like trying to ruin my life. And, um, you know, I used to work with him. So like, he actually exists. I used to work with him. He was my boss and I no longer work with him, but now he's sending people to follow me around and to track my movements because he really hates me and he wants to ruin my life. And he forced me to move out of my apartment and now I'm living in my car. And every time I go into the store, I see his agents that are following me. And, you know, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that something like that could happen. But, you know, is it really happening? Um, there are other delusions where people think that, um, you know, an alien has implanted a chip into their brain and is communicating directly with them and sending them direct signals uh, to behave in certain ways or, um, you know, to do certain actions or to avoid certain situations. Um, so so those, those are typically delusions and they have... Um, have really a thinking component to them. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, you talked about kind of like the, the prodromal or the, um, I forget what you called it, psychosis, psychosis risk state. Risk. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, when symptoms typically begin and um, how common is schizophrenia in general? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, symptoms often begin before schizophrenia is diagnosed, and they can begin years before. Um, 
So just to give a little background in terms of when they begin. So schizophrenia really is most commonly diagnosed during the late adolescent or early adulthood period. For men, it's typically 18 to 24 years old. And for women, it's typically 22 to 28 years old. So it's a little bit offset in terms of timing with women typically getting it slightly older. Um, these are the most common uh, times that, that this illness is diagnosed, but it can happen earlier, it can happen later. Um, we do know from the research that people often have psychotic symptoms, so the delusions, hallucinations, the positive symptoms, for at least one year before they ever come to the clinic or are diagnosed. It can happen often longer. And there are many reasons why this happens, um, including that symptom of anosognosia, um, but many other reasons. Um, people often have some trouble with thinking and cognition as early as childhood, around eight years old. And um, those who end up going on to develop schizophrenia um, just don't develop that cognition as well as those who are unaffected. So they don't get that, that increase in development and they don't ever reach that uh, cognitive ability that those who don't have the illness will reach. Some kids get the full-blown syndrome before age 13, and this is known as childhood onset schizophrenia, and thankfully it's rare. And then others have a diagnosis a bit later in their like 30s to 50s, but that's also less common. Um, and I just wanna make one, one point about, you know, there, there are many reasons to develop psychosis aside from schizophrenia. Okay, so um, psychosis, which is, you know, the break from reality, it's delusions, it's hallucinations, it's thought disorder. This can happen in depression. This can happen in bipolar disorder, PTSD, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, brain cancer, seizure disorders, and pretty much any condition that can affect the central nervous system. So it's important to realize that psychosis does not equal schizophrenia. It could also happen due to drugs, like drug use as well. Yeah, that's, that's a really important point too. And the example I like to make is that like, if you have a fever, that's a symptom, but it doesn't mean you have the flu. It doesn't mean you have COVID. It could be any one of those things. It's just kind of a, an indicator of something happening. I'm glad you made that point. Sure, sure. And yeah, and, and so, you know, in, in your point about, you know, the, the psychosis risk or prodromal period, this is something that was recognized as early as Emil Kraepelin, which I brought up um, in, in the 1890s. Um, and he wrote about the fact that, you know, um, people had you know, cognitive issues and people had symptoms, um, you know, up to a year, two years, three years before they got the full-blown illness. And so this line of research actually picked back up in Australia um, back in the 1990s and has been um, developing kind of dramatically um, because of the reconceptualization of schizophrenia as a neurodevelopmental disorder that can start very early on in terms of the risk. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're quote unquote doomed from the womb. It means that there could be opportunities um, to help modify these risk trajectories. And we can, we can certainly talk uh, more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's an area that you're very active in, in terms of research. Um, so I wanted to ask about risk factors before we get into the kind of brain basis. What are some sure. known risk factors of schizophrenia? Yeah, absolutely. So schizophrenia, we know, is caused by a combination of genetic and environmental uh, risk factors. Um, and this is true for most chronic illnesses, um, chronic medical illnesses, chronic psychiatric illnesses. 
Um, so I, I like to think of, you know, kind of the genetic and environmental contributions to schizophrenia risk as very similar to, you know, risk factors for heart disease and diabetes. Maybe for schizophrenia, there are different risk factors, but it's very similar in that there are, it's called polygenic. So there are tons of genes that can increase a person's risk for schizophrenia. And then there are key environmental factors at key times of development that could do that as well. So let me give you some examples. So for, you know, if, if a person has a parent or a, or a brother or sister with schizophrenia, they actually have a 10 times higher risk of getting schizophrenia. If a person has an identical twin with a disorder, they have a 50 times higher risk of getting it. But 50% of the time, only one identical twin develops schizophrenia while the other doesn't. There are also some specific genetic mutations. So for example, deletion of small parts of a chromosome that can increase schizophrenia risk by 25 times. So there's a clear genetic component. And um, you know, it, when, we, when we talk about, as you alluded to, some of the biological bases, um, I'll give you some more specifics of some of these genetics and, and how they're involved with biology. Um, and then the last thing, there are also many key environmental factors, right? And I think the, the most interesting ones that we're aware of now include maternal immune activation and birth complications. So if a mother who's pregnant with uh, a baby um, has her immune system heavily activated, whether it's through um, toxins or infections, in particular during the second trimester when your brain cells are dividing and migrating, then that increases the risk of the fetus developing schizophrenia uh, later in life. Um, and it's a pretty, I mean, it's like a threefold increase. And then the other thing that I think is fascinating is that repeated cannabis or marijuana use during early adolescence actually has one of the highest environmental risk factors for developing psychosis and schizophrenia. It's actually eightfold. And this is after controlling for so many, because these are epidemiological studies, but after trying to control for so many other factors that may influence that relationship. Yeah, that's so interesting too. And just going back to like things that happen during pregnancy, um, it's just crazy to think about because you're waiting like two decades after that point to actually see the full-blown syndrome actually appear. But, you know, the neurodevelopmental process can be traced back potentially as early as um, in utero, which is really interesting. So I'm just fascinated um, to hear about kind of the work on neurodevelopment. Um, so let's get to that. It's, it's definitely a complex brain disorder. Um, as a psychiatrist, um, this is very mysterious disorder. It's very complicated. There's not like a schizophrenia gene. Um, as you mentioned, there's a lot of different factors at play. Um, so you certainly have your work uh, caught up for you, but um, can you get a little bit into the brain basis and hit on some of your research in that area? Sure. Yeah. Happy to do so. And, you know, so biological bases of schizophrenia, really, they've been challenging to pinpoint and find detail. Um, and I would say it's possible that there are several biological subtypes that will respond to different interventions. Um, but for now, we call them all schizophrenia. But maybe in the future, like much of what's happened with cancer, there may be more specific biological classifications with more targeted treatments and fewer adverse effects. That's certainly the hope. Um, biologically, there have been multiple hypotheses put forth. Um, a number of them were brain signaling or neurotransmitter theories. And it started with something called the dopamine hypothesis. And the reason the, the dopamine hypothesis uh, kind of, uh, you know, 
was was developed and and known is that the first medications for schizophrenia and psychosis were discovered by chance by serendipity um and they really helped people uh, people's delusions and hallucinations and allowed them to live outside of institutions for the first time um, this happened in the 1950s um and so when people studied, you know, well, what do these drugs target? What do they do? They actually targeted dopamine receptors. And what they found with studies is that the, the tighter the drug bound to the dopamine receptor, the stronger the response um, to uh, reducing the psychotic symptoms. Then they saw, they made the observations that things that increase dopamine led to psychosis, like certain Parkinson's drugs that increase dopamine actually caused psychosis. They're like, okay, well, that, that's another thing that's saying, okay, maybe dopamine is involved. Um, and then third, when they did um, certain uh, studies, well, they also found that drugs like amphetamines, for example, that really increased dopamine and dopamine release caused psychosis. Um, and they actually displaced dopamine from your um, kind of dopamine uh, releasing cells and the neurotransmitter receptors. Um, so there, there, that was the initial kind of brain theory of schizophrenia where the dopamine hypotheses there, these have evolved. There's another thing called the aberrant salience theory, which is a fancy way of saying that, you know, someone basically sees signals that are meaningless and ascribes meaning to it. And then, um, you know, those could become part of the delusion and that that's thought to involve the dopamine systems as well. There are other neurotransmitter systems that have also been implicated like glutamate um, because there is a particular receptor for glutamate that is affected by ketamine, which is another drug or substance that is both used as a medicine and used as a street drug. And ketamine can cause a syndrome that looks a lot like schizophrenia. So there have been a lot of studies uh, related to glutamate. And then there has been a, a GABA receptor hypothesis because there have been uh, lots of changes seen in the biology of GABA neurons, which are basically cells that modify, um, you know, the, the signal or the output of uh, brain communication. Um, so those are some of the, the actual neurotransmitter theories, but there have also been immune mediated theories, um, like infections in particular, the flu or, or toxoplasmosis, which is a different kind of, uh, you know, kind of protozoan type infection. Um, and maybe we'll see this with COVID too. So that, that's something to keep in mind because that could happen, we'll know 15, 20 years from now. Um, but I talked about the maternal immune activation during second trimester, but there's also a recent genetic study that was very high profile. It found that the highest genetic signal for common variants in schizophrenia occurs in the immune system. And it actually hits like an innate immune marker that's thought to be important for sculpting brain circuits. Um, and so, you know, I'll leave it at that. There are a number of other theories um, that we can talk about, um, but I feel like that might already be a lot of information. No, it was all it was all great information. And as you were explaining, kind of the dopamine hypothesis of schizophrenia that kind of kicked things off. I couldn't help um, but thinking of depression, which has a very similar story with um, the serotonin system. And um, we'll do an episode on depression um, one one of these days. But yeah, it was just kind of by chance that they found that medications that work on the serotonin system seem to relieve depression. So they thought it was a deficit in serotonin and kind of like what you just described, it seems to be a little bit more complicated than that, but, (laughs) 
Really, really interesting. Um, I think the the point about antipsychotics um, is really interesting. If we could just go back to that really yeah. quickly, that you know they work, but they they work for potentially positive symptoms, and so are a lot of patients you know, left with negative symptoms. And I know they have a lot of side effects. So can you talk about kind of what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the, one of the problems, um, with these antipsychotic medications and notice they're called antipsychotic and not antischizophrenia. Um, but uh, one of the problems is that yes, they don't relieve other aspects of the disorder. So they really don't with, with exception of maybe one or two newer or, or like what we call second generation antipsychotic medications. Uh, most of them don't really touch the cognitive symptoms and do very little for the negative symptoms. So you're left with people who maybe aren't actively having severe delusions or hallucinations, but they also, you know, have no relief from their lack of emotion, lack of motivation, um, you know, thought processing abnormalities. And so they're kind of left still unable to have a conversation, um, to really connect with people, probably to work a lot of the times, especially when it's severe. Um, and then you mentioned something really important is that the side effect burden is immense for these drugs. Um, a lot of people, you know, some people don't want to use the drugs because like we talked about, they, they don't think they're sick or they can't recognize that they have symptoms, but many people don't want to use it because it just makes them feel terrible. Um, you know, these, these anti-psychotic medications are also, they cause Parkinsonism, which is basically like a slowing of movements and a slowing of thought and speech. So they like literally like slow down everything. Um, and the other problem is that they could cause tremors and they could cause movement disorders, some of which can be irreversible. So tardive dyskinesia is a horrible side effect where you get abnormal movements in your mouth and tongue. Um, and unfortunately for most people, that's not reversible. Um, now we have a newer class of antipsychotics that don't cause nearly as much movement disorder, but instead they cause metabolic syndrome, which means people, um, end up getting diabetes end up getting severely overweight and end up getting severe, um, you know, uh, basically heart disease. Um, and so it's kind of a poison, you know, and it's helpful in certain ways, but just like any other medicine, um, it can be a poison as well. Yeah. And I, I'm just imagining the burden on the patient and the family to go through this. And especially if one of the kind of core symptoms sometimes is not even realizing you're sick. So then going through all of these medication side effects. So I think there's just, like you said, a lot more work that needs to be done in really characterizing the different types and developing more targeted treatments and some of your work on looking at the developmental processes and seeing how we can actually stop this before it actually becomes full-blown schizophrenia. So very cool. I hope to have you on the podcast in a couple of years to hear some more updates, but <laughs> I wanted to get into kind of the, the stigma aspect because I know that's something that you're yes. very involved in and, and you've touched on. So, um, you know, there's so much stigma surrounding psychiatric disorders in general and I think for schizophrenia, that's that's even more um, of a problem. So can you talk about um, schizophrenia, how it, or stigma, how it plays a role in, in this disorder specifically, yeah. and, and what can we do to fight stigma? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, so st stigma has been, um, you know, a part of many different conditions, including cancer, including 
seizures, epilepsy, um, but, but definitely in terms of um, psychiatric or mental health issues. Um, and madness has been something that has frightened people um, for as long as humanity has existed. Um, and, you know, like, like I said, uh, you know, different cultures and different civilizations have um, tried to figure out or explain, you know, what's going on and then try to figure out what to do with these people. And sometimes the, the treatment has been more humane. Sometimes it's been like really cruel. Um, but stigma, stigma itself is kind of complex um, in a way. Um, and I, I just want to mention a couple of things before I talk about how it directly relates to schizophrenia. But based on the research out there, stigma can be divided into at least three different types. Um, I think of it as internalized, interpersonal, and institutional. So internalized stigma develops when labeled individuals actually internalize negative stereotypes and view themselves as flawed relative to others. Whereas interpersonal stigma occurs when labeled individuals are socially categorized and that results in and facilitates discrimination, social rejection and isolation. And then institutional stigma occurs when labeled individuals are literally excluded by institutional policies and practices. Um, so all these three types of stigma occur in schizophrenia. Um, and we know that internalized stigma contributes to social isolation in individuals with schizophrenia, which has long been known to increase risk for poor health outcomes. Other consequences of the internalized stigma include you know, delayed treatment seeking, um, perceiving the need for treatment as weak, and decreased treatment adherence. Um, because if they feel that, if people feel like they're flawed and they need these treatments um, to try to cover up these flaws, they, they want to avoid these treatments. Um, then in terms of people around them, subtle changes in behavior of those experiencing some subclinical psychosis may give rise to negative social interactions and discrimination. And then that in turn can loop back and increase risk for delusional ideation. So, you know, for example, the observed risk for schizophrenia in minority groups actually increases with the level of discrimination endured. And then another study showed that individuals who are either at high or ultra high risk that transi transition to schizophrenia reported higher stigma related harm. And that higher perception of harm due to stigma at baseline actually predicted transition to schizophrenia. Um, so that's kind of the social impact. And then, you know, from an institutional standpoint, mental illnesses, including schizophrenia, receive the least amount of, mon uh, of funding or money per disability adjusted life years, despite having one of the largest disease burdens worldwide. The other thing that's important is that treatment facilities for schizophrenia tend to be in isolated, disadvantaged, and otherwise limited access areas. And then having a history of mental illness leads to resource reducing discrimination in employment, wages, mortgages, housing, and education. Um, so there's so many ways that stigma actually affects an individual and their families with schizophrenia far beyond the clinical symptoms. And so, you know, so the question of, well, so what do we do about it? How can we actually help people or, or like try to break the stigma? And um, that's, that's been very challenging. And actually, you know, so there have been all kinds of like education programs, you know, trying to help people understand that this is not, you know, the person's fault or doing, or they're not possessed. This is neurobiological. And shockingly, actually, those education programs do not actually help reduce stigma. Um, you'd think that they would, but they don't. Um, because then people say, oh, well, they have, you know, a brain illness that's irreversible and we can't do anything about it anyway. So they're flawed. 
Um, so that was kind of surprising to me. But some of the studies that show what actually helps in reducing stigma is, you know, taking people with schizophrenia and people who are not affected and having them interact and do project building and work together toward common goals where the power differential is completely abolished. And so rather than, you know, showing someone either that's stereotypically, you know, like, um, you know, homeless, for example, who gets like stigmatized all the time, people will say, oh yeah, that's like everyone with this illness. Or if you bring someone who has actually succeeded and maybe had the illness, but then you know, became a professional or like did well in life, then people sometimes will say, oh, well, that's an exception. You know, so stigma is very, very hard to defeat and eradicate. And I think partly, you know, getting better treatments will help. Um, but then also reducing that power differential and mixing groups um, can actually help break down those, those uh, negative stereotypes. Yeah, you mentioned so many different aspects that I haven't even thought about. I didn't I haven't thought about like someone's just the label and how that affects someone in and of themselves and how that kind of snowballs and all of these things contribute to each other. So thanks for very clearly like defining each of those. Um, at the very beginning, you actually touched on like the prison um, pipeline and you know this touches on more areas that probably get into more of that like institutional, you know, you know, you mentioned like um, not being able to get a job as well, like things that happen in school, because I'm also imagining a lot of, you know, college students might have their first psychotic break. That's pretty, pretty common. So how does how does universities play a role in this? How does that prison pipeline play a play a role? I know that's kind of a big <laughs> discussion point. So yeah. I don't know if there's anything you wanted to, to add on that level. Yeah, yeah, I'll try to keep it brief. I mean, for, from the prison standpoint, it's it's really it's really tragic. Um, in fact, I, I think maybe a few years ago when they did these studies, the U.S. prison system is de facto the largest psychiatric institution in in the country. Um, so there are more people with mental illness, and there are more people with schizophrenia in prison or in jail than there are in hospitals. Uh, which is kind of shocking, um, you know, and, and we've seen, you know, as clinicians uh, in, in our experience, I mean, we see a lot of the same people who have like chronic illness, chronic severe schizophrenia, for example, um, being brought in by police from the streets to get evaluated, to get treatment. And, you know, we're able to stabilize them, but then, you know, where do they go after? They, they have very limited resources and um, they don't have a good structured outpatient um, so oftentimes they then um, kind of are unable to keep up with their treatments. They're unable to kind of reintegrate into society and then their symptoms come back and they wind up um, back on the streets a lot of the time until they're picked up by police. They either bring them to jail if they, you know, if they did something um, that requires that or they bring them back to the hospital. Um, so it's heartbreaking. And, you know, and yes, you, you notice that the age of onset is often during college or like shortly after college. Um, and that's a, that's a critical period of development for people's lives to form their social connections, to form their, you know, employment opportunities, um, to really develop and grow out of adolescence and into adulthood. And when you have something like this, that's, that's so severe and completely derails their entire life, Oftentimes, you know, they, they can't form romantic relationships or good friendships or good, um, you know, career opportunities, and they end up 
um, you know, living at home or living in group homes or going through that vicious um, revolving door. And it's, it's really, it's really a, a kind of a, a sad life for a lot of these people because they do have a lot of potential. And when you do talk to them and engage people with schizophrenia and treatment, I mean, they have dreams and hopes just like everyone else. And um, so one of the big things, for example, in our clinics that, that is critical is we have people not just giving medication, but also doing um, psychotherapy and helping people manage um, some of their delusions and hallucinations with cognitive behavioral therapy. Then we have people who are experts in helping reintegrate people either into work or school um, and allowing people to explore what would be meaningful for them in their life and what, what would actually match up with their abilities also. Um, so I think that's, a, that's a, an integrated approach to trying to help people and early as possible and including family whenever possible um, can really give people an opportunity to recover. Um, and that's the goal right now. We can't cure it, but we can help people recover. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a common theme we've, we've heard through some of these interviews is that there needs to be just so much more support for mental health in this country and giving people the support they need, not, you know, not just after that treatment, but after they, you know, leave the clinic. So it's not just that revolving door. Um, a lot of things I want to ask you about, but I'm trying to, to triage. I think one um, common misconception that I hear all the time that maybe you want to address quickly is um, that people with schizophrenia are more violent than other people or more likely to commit a crime. Do you want to try to? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that's also an, an important point that plays into um, just human beings' fear of, you know, these strange symptoms that, that people aren't familiar with. Um, there is a very, very slight um, increase in risk of violence for people with schizophrenia. However, most of that increase, if not all, is accounted for uh, by substance use. So by like, use of alcohol or other drugs, which is true, drugs and alcohol increase the risk of violence in everybody across the board not just people with schizophrenia. Um, so that's true. However, what people don't realize is that the risk of harm and violence happening to someone with schizophrenia is about eight or nine times or eight or nine fold than someone in the healthy regular population. Part of that has to do with, again, you know, the revolving door of being on the streets and being vulnerable, um, being in prisons and, and not being able to you know, protect themselves or act, um, you know, protective in a social situation. Um, and so they are much, much more vulnerable to violence happening to them. And the vast majority of people with schizophrenia are too frightened to actually want to do anything, even if they're getting command hallucinations um, that are telling them, oh, you know, hurt this person or hurt yourself. They try their hardest to ignore those things. Um, so the reality is that the person with schizophrenia is going to be much, much more afraid of you than you should be or probably will be of them. Um, and so I think it's really important to keep that in mind and, um, and not to get caught up in the often media narrative that, you know, schizophrenia, individuals with schizophrenia are, are um, you know, like ticking time bombs or ready to just like hurt you at any moment. It's not true. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I think that's that's a really important point for folks to keep in mind. 
So let's end with um, what kind of resources would you recommend for someone who either thinks they have schizophrenia or might have a family member or friend who's been affected? Sure, sure. I think the um, the major resource really more for family members, but it could be also for individuals with schizophrenia is uh, NAMI or the National Alliance on Mental Illness. This is, uh, like it says, is a, it's a national organization, but um, within most cities, there are, there are local chapters. And um, this place, um, you know, usually it's, it's run by family members of people with severe mental illness. They have uh, all kinds of things um, like, a, like a free 12-week family-to-family course where you could learn all about um, often schizophrenia, for example, um, all about what we talked about in much more detail, and also learn how to communicate with your loved ones, how to um, kind of process and, and like help each other and build a community. Because a lot of times when you feel isolated in these overwhelming situations, it's, it's much worse. Um, so NAMI is, is a wonderful organization that could be helpful. Um, the, the National Institutes of Mental Health or the NIMH has a, has a website for um, what's called the RAISE study. Um, and let me see actually um, the, the acronym. Um, I can't think of it off the, off the top of my head, but it's basically, it was, it was a very um, interesting uh, community study uh, for early treatment program is actually called recovery after an initial schizophrenia episode, early treatment program. <clears throat> and it combined basically like the top pharmacologic and psychosocial treatments that were delivered by well-trained multidisciplinary team. And they found that, you know, that kind of, um, you know, multidisciplinary um, treatment um, and, and well-trained team um, really helped people recover. And so there's information, if it's R-A-I-S-E, um, if you do RAISE study um, in National Institutes of Mental Health or NIMH, um, then you can find information about that um, and what was used and who offers those kinds of things. Awesome. Those are two great resources. I will also um, link to it in the bio of this podcast, but um, thank you so much, Dr. Hoffman. This was so um, interesting and informative and I could have booked out five hours to talk with you about this, but <laughs> we'll definitely have to have you back on in a couple of years to hear about um, some updates. I'd love to be back. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. That wraps up another episode of the Brainstem Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe and share this with friends and family, and be sure to follow us on social media at Brainstem Podcast.